Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Last month, we launched a new series called Making Her Story, which focuses on prominent Connecticut women. We asked them about their careers and how they navigate a work-life balance, but we also want to know what advice they have for young women and girls. Our latest conversation was taped earlier this month at the Warner Theater in Torrington. It's fair to say our second profile is quite the star guest. Priya Natarajan is a world-renowned astrophysicist whose research includes mapping the distribution of dark matter in the universe. She's a professor of astronomy and physics at Yale University. And last year, her first book was published, Mapping the Heavens, the Radical Scientific Ideas that Reveal the Cosmos. I spoke with Priya before an audience at the theater. I asked her to talk about the work of an astrophysicist. So um, as it turns out, so astrophysics is generally, sort of broadly speaking, the study of the cosmos and its contents, um, understanding the origin of galaxies, the not just the formation, but the evolution, and uh, both sort of distant galaxies and nearby ones, including our own. Um, I have gravitated in astrophysics to sort of thinking and working on sort of exotica in the universe. So uh, my own work centered on trying to understand this sort of ubiquitous component of matter, dominant component of matter that remains unseen. Uh, It's called dark matter um, and it's called so because it doesn't emit any light, it doesn't absorb any light, it doesn't reflect any light. And so unlike sort of common experience of stars that you see that shine and emit their own light, a vast majority of the matter content of the universe is actually dark. And the only reason we know it's there is because matter. So it actually has mass and it's matter. So it has all the properties that matter has. Um, It has gravity. And therefore, you infer its presence indirectly by the effect it exerts on bodies around it, on stars, galaxies, and so on. And the other topic that I have also worked on, in fact, my PhD thesis was really mostly on uh, black holes. Let's back up a little and find out, as a young girl growing up in India, when did you become enamored with the stars? Probably extremely young. I was... um, I was always, um, I was a very curious child, and I just want to correct you that curious is not um, a sort of a fancy way to say naughty or, you know, hyper or whatever. I wasn't. I was, you know, extremely curious and um, wanted to understand things uh, and pestered my parents. So, my, I, you know, I, uh, I was acquainted both with a microscope and a telescope quite young. And it was very clear to me which instrument I preferred and what I preferred to see. (laughs) And I think there was something as a child, and I think I still have that same feeling, there's something about the fact that it's untouchable and it's out of reach that makes it more exciting and that it's just so seductive because you see them tantalizingly close, beautiful images, but you can't quite 
touch them, right? So I think um, I was very, very young. Um, I looked through a telescope, and I think probably the first time I looked through a telescope, I really fell in love with the cosmos, and that was it. But you know, I wasn't very, uh, I mean, careerist as such. I hadn't sort of mapped and said, okay, now I'm going to become a theoretical astrophysicist. I was just very interested in science. <laughs> so science and math, um, you know, and, and I loved both science and math. I actually loved a lot of subjects in school. I kind of knew that I wanted to figure stuff out, that that was the profession. My parents are professors, so and I liked the life they had. And I was like, oh, it would be nice to figure stuff out. And um, so I think it was very clear that I would do science and I wanted to be a scientist. And you know, I also wanted to be an explorer. So that was always a fantasy. So you know, when I was a child, I was fascinated with maps. And so you know, both celestial and terrestrial maps. And I always kind of, and I always had um, kind of wanderlust, so wanted to go to places, right? So I had this little book that was Seven Wonders of the World. Even before I could really say very much, I kind of, you know, when I was, um, you know, upset with my parents for something, I'd be like, I'm off to Machu Picchu. <laughs> <laughs> Did I know what it was? No. But, you know, so, you know, I had this sort of uh, idea that I was this explorer, and I, you know, and I wanted to be an explorer, and actually I have two brothers, and they would always tease me saying that, you know, given how gentil I am, that I really would not have survived scurvy on one of those, you know, 14th, 15th century kind of voyages of discovery. But I think I'm trying to, I'm doing the next best thing, which is like armchair exploring in a way. And you describe yourself as a cosmic explorer. Of sorts, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Because I think that, you know, almost we're all explorers in some sense, right? Because there's, um, we all have an innate sense, I think that's part of being human, an innate sense of curiosity. And I think people kind of channel it in many different ways. I mean, there are people who just learn a lot of different languages and they channel, they, just, they wanna explore other cultures. And there are people like me who want to explore uh, the material world, the physical world. There are people who want to explore the internal world, people who are interested in neuroscience and psychology and so on. So I think, you know, at some level we're all explorers and I, I just feel really fortunate to be doing the kind of exploring that I'm doing. You mentioned both your parents were professors. How did they encourage you? Um, we had had a discussion, an informal discussion before tonight, where you talked about uh, the the advent of the computer, the Commodore 64 that your father uh, bought you, <laughs> and how you were pestering a, a woman um, for something to do because you were this curious child. You were looking right. for for, so. <laughs> uh, for a challenge. Tell us about that. So you know. Um, so my, my father, I grew up in New Delhi in India. That's where I finished my schooling, um, I finished high school. And my dad would go abroad fairly often for conferences and stuff like that. He was a civil engineer by training and then he um, moved on to engineering education. He's a very eminent educationist. Um, so he bought me a Commodore 64 before anybody in India actually had one. So you know, this was like the early 80s. Right? Did anyone else have a Commodore 64? Well, that dates all of us in the audience, right? I mean, and so, you know, and I learned how to program. And the only language then was basic. So you know, I'd learned how to program. And, um, and I was itching to do something. And I used to go to the amateur astronomy nights at the Nehru Planetarium in Delhi. And they had a new director, this woman, Nirupama Raghavan, Dr. Nirupama Raghavan who actually um, was pretty important um, in my life. 
And so, you know, she had just come, she just finished a PhD, and, um, you know, and I had read a write-up about her. They said, you know, she did a lot of research and stuff. So I showed up at her door and said, okay, you know, I can program a computer. And uh, how old were you? <laughs> I was like in my early teens. I, you know, I can, I can, you know, I can program a computer and I can help you in your research if you'd like me to. Please give me something to do, right? And so she kind of fobbed me off a few times, said, oh, just come to the public night and maybe help me put up the poster, you know, stuff like that, because I was kind of this kid and she wasn't sure how serious I was. But I kept pestering her and then uh, she said, okay, I'll give you a problem. And later on, she told me, she thought, okay, I finally got rid of this Priya kid, right? <laughs> so she gave me this problem, and because I told her, she said, okay, what do you like doing? And I said, oh, I love maps and stuff. And she said, oh, great. So, you know, in the newspapers in Delhi, every month they publish a sky chart, a night chart, which tells you the constellations and which planets you could see and you know, what cosmic phenomena you might be able to see naked eye. And so she said, why don't you make a star map for Delhi? And it was a hard problem, um, but I, I took it on, and it was summer holidays, and you know, so in India, after school, you have like three months off, like you're really going batty as kids, right? And when I was a kid, there, were, there weren't these kind of hyper-organized summer camps and stuff like You had to sort of figure stuff out to keep yourself busy. And so I found this project, and I was obsessed with doing this, and I solved it. It just had to do, I had to teach myself spherical geometry, some trigonometry, and <laughs> I had to kind of do this stuff. And I programmed it, and I showed up triumphantly, like, you know, a month or so later to her office, and she was like, oh, okay, did you get stuck? So I said, no, I've done it. She said, oh, good for you. Okay, show me what you've done. So I showed her a printout of the map. Uh, for that particular day, I thought it was very clever, I'd done it for that day, and, and she was like, oh, this is great, but you know, Priya, what if you move to Boston or Brisbane? So wouldn't you want to see the night sky? I said, oh yeah, don't worry. I mean, the way I've done the map, you just put the latitude and the longitude of any place on Earth, and basically I can make the map. So at that moment, she told me later, that's when she realized, okay, okay, here's someone that you know what, I'm lucky to have fallen into my lap to mentor. Mm. So I think she took me on from then on. She took me very seriously, extremely seriously after that. And, and, and I think that um, there was a way in which I had, was very lucky that very early on, there's this sheer joy of figuring something out to yourself. And it doesn't matter how deep that idea is or how simple the idea is. The fact that you've done it yourself there's a special thrill. And I think I got that kick very young. And I realized that research is really what I enjoy and want to do. This is where we live. Today we're listening back to a conversation with Yale astrophysicist Priya Natarajan. She was our guest at the Warner Theater earlier this month for Where We Live series, Making Her Story. Coming up, we hear about her journey to the U.S. and how she set herself apart at MIT in Cambridge. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Yale astrophysicist Priya Natarajan grew up in India. She says she loved maps as a child and challenges, and she became a star pupil. We talked about her life during a conversation at the Warner Theater in Torrington for our series on prominent Connecticut women. It's called Making Her Story, and we taped it earlier this month. It's obvious you were an exceptional child. You excelled at many things. How did your parents keep you grounded? Uh, in retrospect, 
I whined a bit when I was young, but you know, in retrospect, they were amazing. So you know, I was um, I was really good at a lot of things, and essentially, my parents would tell me, you know, put your if I put my mind to something, if I really focused, you know, I could crack stuff. And so I would get a lot of prizes for all kinds of things. And you know, I would sing, I would dance, I did everything. I had a lot of energy, right? My parents would not actually show up for many <laughs> for all these things. And I would whine and I would say, you know, look at my friend. Her mom and dad are sitting in the front row and they're cheering her on and you know, you're not coming to hear me sing or this, that, and my parents are like, you know, that's great. We love it. You're enjoying it. We're busy. Good for you. So I think at the time I didn't kind of understand what they were trying to do, but I think they worked really hard to make sure that you know I didn't become arrogant and I didn't you know feel super hyper confident and full of myself. They just sort of wanted me to take things lightly, and and I think it's been it's an in, it's been an invaluable lesson about success, mm-hmm. because I think that there um, there was no set because they didn't push me to do this that or didn't particularly uh, go gaga if I got a prize or something. I kind of from a young age realized that I would have to f- define my own success. That there wasn't a track, there wasn't a thing that I had to, particular thing that I had to aspire for. I kind of had to figure stuff out and and that success was whatever was gonna make me happy at that moment. So it was all very sort of uh, subdued um, until I went to sort of like 10th grade and you know 10th and 12th grade are sort of the national exams in India and and you know you're streamed at that point into whether you wanna do sciences. You have to make choices very early on uh, there. And at that point, I went to a very competitive school, an academically extremely competitive school. And there we were streamed um, into sections, and you know, I was in a section called Ability, which I really hated. Um, ability? But, yeah, <laughs> the Ability sections. And, um, uh, but you know, I still, even that school I loved. Uh, I l- enjoyed uh, my classes because you know, everyone uh, in, in India at the time was obsessed with doing medicine or engineering, and I didn't want to do either of those. I knew I wanted to do pure sciences, I wanted to be a scientist. So in a way, I was um, an outsider in, in that game. So, you know, and they, it, it was peculiar that, you know, I had mastery of the things that I, I could do a lot of things easily, but I didn't want to go become an engineer and go to IIT, which is where everybody wanted to go. And uh, because you know you went there to do engineering, not pure sciences, and because I'd had the bug with research, I sort of knew that I probably needed to go to the United States for college. I wanted to be in a system like the American system, which was extremely attractive to me, where as an undergraduate you could do research, and that's why I went to MIT because MIT offered that before any other place in the U.S. did. How difficult was it to make that step to move to the United States to study at MIT? You know, I never thought of it as being difficult, but um, it was unusual. And so it, you had to find out, it was not so easy to apply. And then, you know, the Indian economy was closed. This was the late 80s. So you could not transfer more than $500 a year legally to this country. So if you, even if I did get admission, I would have to get a full scholarship to come. So there were many barriers at the time. It was quite unusual to come for your undergraduate, therefore, at that time. And, uh, and my parents were academics, they couldn't really afford it. 
Uh, and you know, there were all the hoops you had to take the SATs, they were offered. Luckily, I grew up in Delhi, everything was offered in Delhi, so you know, and at that time you had to take achievement tests, the AP equivalent tests. So I did all of that, you know, and there was no internet. So, you know, finding all of this stuff out was hard. So, you know, um, you know you, I went to the US EFI, the United States Educational Foundation in India, and found out how to do all of this, and I applied to a couple of places. And I chose, I mean, I ended up choosing sort of the big universities because they're the only ones that give financial aid, I mean, to international students. I think the um, adjustment, I really had no conception of how different things would be. My acquaintance with America at that time, I had not visited the US at that time, right, uh, when I applied. And my acquaintance at that time was uh, watching Star Trek and Cosmos. So. <laughs> and, yeah, and honestly, and I, you know, I, when I landed, my dad came to leave me at college, and you know, so we stopped by in England for a week, and then uh, London, and then we came here to Boston. And I did not have, I never had a bank account at that point. I, I didn't know how to do anything, really. We didn't have ATMs in India, so I didn't know what an ATM, I mean, there was a, things that are a lot easier now. Because of the hegemony of American culture globally now, if you're a kid growing up in India and you come, like my nieces and nephews, if they come to college here, you know, the, the, the adjustment is not gonna be as severe on so many fronts, right, uh, in terms of practical things. I think for me, the thing that was challenging um, in my early years um, at MIT was really that my intellectual life my, uh, was way ahead of my emotional maturity. And I think that, that kind of balanced out, it took a while to balance out. And, and I think, uh, but at MIT, I had a blast. I had a wonderful time. Um, I worked hard, but I didn't think it was insanely hard, um, and I enjoyed mm -hmm. myself a lot. Um, You're saying it wasn't hard. MIT was not difficult for you. I wouldn't say it wasn't difficult. It was challenging, but you know that was not the overwhelming thing that comes to mind. Um, there was just so much excitement about the new kinds of things that I was learning. And I think it, you know, I did go to, as I said, I went to an elite school in India, so. You know, it was not academically that difficult to start with. So I had a very easy kind of slide into the place. And then I sort of figured out, it was also very mentally, I think one of the things, again, you know, with my parents that, you know, I was very mentally disciplined at a very young age because now I teach a lot of younger people and I notice and I see a lot of really talented kids. And, um, and I wonder sometimes, hmm, you know, it's a really talented kid why aren't they learning as, you know, like I think they should, given the minds that they have? And then I realized that, you know, they just really don't have as much mental discipline. I mean, they haven't really, they don't have the kind of mental habits that you need to be an effective learner. So again, you know, it's one of those lucky things that I ended up learning that very early. Who were the, the other students in your class? This was the 80s when you yeah. were at MIT. Yeah. You're in the sciences. Was it 50-50? No, but I was the first year that, um, that it was about 30% women. So it was a big jump, and um, that was the first year that we were 30% women. And you know, I, I majored in physics and mathematics, and in my physics major, um, we started out with probably 10, 15 women, maybe, in the first sort of year or so. I had kind of skipped the first year, so I was already in classes with the sophomores, 
And, but what I found at the end, of course, the number of female physics majors was really, really low. Mm. So, you know, and it was clear that, um, you know, as I went on and, and I think um, I was taking a lot of graduate courses when I was a junior, and I would notice, I have to say, that the, the way in which I notice is because I would raise my hand and ask a question and I would suddenly realize that, gosh, I sound really different from everyone else in the room. And not just because of my weird accent, but I was a girl. So I think that you know, the fact that the gender ratio was uh, not great was something you just could not not notice. Um, but you pushed ahead. We hear often uh, when people feel like they are uh, you know, unique and maybe people are judging them they tend to uh, not uh, work to their full ability because of confidence, but you push through that? Yeah, so I think once again there, right, that um, there was some sort of um, training, um, inadvertent training that um, from a young age that I'd had, which I think has helped me cope. Uh, you know, all of this is kind of wisdom now, like after I turned 40, like thinking about things like, how did I really do this? How did this work? And I think that from a very young age, um, I had to deal with the tension and the conflict, the internal tension and the conflict of being an insider and an outsider. So my family is from the south of India. Uh, we're South Indians and I grew up in Delhi, which is the north, which is culturally quite distinct. Uh, distinct enough that you know we eat differently, we eat different stuff, we eat rice primarily rather than wheat, you know, our habits are very different. Um, and you know, aesthetic is different. Everything is really different. It really, it's like two different countries almost, right? And so I grew up in this culture, sort of immersed in a place where we were outsiders. And um, and so I think I kind of learned the skill of somehow. I mean, you know, it's not completely resolved. I wouldn't say I've mastered it or whatever. That there's still that little bit of uh, sort of tension that you feel that you're not an insider and you're an outsider, and that's a given. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you try to fit in, in some ways, in, in ways that you can, that, that ways that you possibly can. And I think with, uh, with physics and with science, um, I, I realized from a young age that, you know, from the MIT experience, mastery, mastery of the subject was the way to creep in, to be included, to be on the inside. And even then, you know, you never quite feel like you're inside. Uh, no, it's gender, it's culture, it's race, it's everything, right? And, and I think that's been a very dominant theme in my life. And I finally feel, after I turned 40, I feel like there's been some kind of truce um, in the sense that I realized, I used to feel that it was disempowering to be this outsider, right? So I'd be conscious of that. Um, but what I realized is that there's enormous power and freedom that you have as an outsider because you can do things your way and you could be your authentic self. And that has been really important uh, because the culture of physics and astrophysics, the sort of the scientific academic culture is very competitive. And you know, I am, I, I, I'm competitive, but that's not what drives me to do better, to learn more, to learn deeper. And, and I think that sort of not wanting to participate in, you know, 
a staging of that, the way that culture gets staged. Right? You know, when you give talks, people ask aggressive questions, and you know, it's a, it's a, the exchange. Um, I didn't want to be that person, and I didn't want to change and become the kind of person who would be seen as uh, successful because they participate in in that kind of in interchange. I wanted to do it my way, and I would always feel like hmm, I'm an outsider. And now I realize that. I was able to do it my way because I was an outsider. And in a way, people didn't know what to expect of me, right? Like, um, um, and I think it's actually been very empowering. And, and I, you know, and I, when I talk to my students now, and I've had a lot of students who are from underrepresented groups um, who, uh, who don't feel that they fit or belong in many ways. So I've had a few students um, in my time at Yale. And I always tell them that there's, you know, deal with this discomfort in your own particular personal way. There is no formula. Each of us has to deal with the discomfort of feeling that you don't belong. And then there is a way in which you will work out over time that the, this discomfort with not belonging is actually freeing. And it allows you to be who you are. Um, and so I think that's sort of a way in which I've kind of coped. And mm -hmm. I find that, you know, even when people ask me about, you know, being a woman in science and so on, I think for me it's, it's part of the same, the outsider-insider. And I think, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of my colleagues who hear this interview will say, what, Priya? I mean, you know, she went to MIT, she did a PhD at Cambridge, she teaches at Yale, she's an, in, she's an outsider, really? There's no more establishment, you can't get more establishment than my credentials, right? Like all the lineage, you know, I have the impeccable lineage of who I worked with and, you know, what I did. But, you know, this is a different, it's a psychological stance that you have, you know, even if you have the track and the lineage, academic intellectual lineage, uh, because, you know, um, uh, who you are is very important to what you bring, even to science. Science is seen as this sort of objective activity you're teasing out and truths from nature or whatever. So, you know, uh, we're actually, it's a very human endeavor. And, and you, who you are impacts how you approach problems and how you, um, how you navigate, you know. Uh, you once said that science is often represented as the work of lone male geniuses with bad hair. <laughs> How are you changing that, Priya? Well, <laughs> those of you who can see me <laughs> can probably tell I'm quite vain about my hair. <laughs> no, just kidding. No, I think that part of these kinds of images and stereotypes that we carry are what uh, create this barrier of inside and outside. And, and I think we, uh, these need to be challenged. I mean, these need to be challenged, first of all, because they're untrue. I mean, they're, um, they were untrue even when they were describing, sure the, uh, you know, Einstein was incredible. He did amazing work. But the work that he did, um, there were others who helped him. There were um, this general theory of relativity that he built. Um, you know, there were the mathematicians. There was a whole mathematical framework that was developed by others. So, you know, he was not, um, you know, his work was not solitary in that sense. Of course, he wrote the papers himself, and, you know, it's, uh, I'm not taking away credit from him. But 
Nowadays, uh, science is very collaborative. It's done in groups of small and large groups. And some of the, you know, in astrophysics still very recently, it used to be particle physics that had these collaborations of thousands of people. But astrophysics is heading in that same direction. The, uh, the field has become, the problems have become, we're in a mature state. The problems are complex, so you need the collective creativity of many individuals who bring different gifts to push forward and get a deeper understanding. So, you know, science now cannot really be thought of as being driven by sort of, you know, one or two people, the frontier. Mm -hmm. The frontier is really driven by groups. After having said that though, um, I do think that um, the subject of genius aside, um, there are many different scientific styles. So there are people who work very well individually uh, and there are people who work in small groups effectively and large groups. And the people who work on their own or uh, in small groups are often individuals like me who um, are willing to take speculative risks. They are willing to take intellectual risks. And, um, and I think therefore that style of working um, should also be encouraged and it should be funded. The problem with large groups and large collaborations is that often it's, you know, it's a complex problem, it's science by consensus, and because this requires a huge investment of resources, right? So you require the taxpayers to, via the National Science Foundation or NASA, to give you millions of dollars to do a project, right? And so you feel very responsible that, you know, you map it out entirely, you know what you're gonna do, and you know, it's a, it's a perfectly ordered, discipline enterprise. Whereas when you're working as an individual scientist or a small group, you can afford to take a creative risk. You know, you can take, a, you know, you can work on a speculation because you've not, you know, it's not so resource heavy what you're doing. And, you know, I've been a proponent, you know, as I said, the question of genius aside, I've been a real proponent for many different scientific styles. I think the breakthroughs that are gonna come, we have no idea where the breakthroughs are gonna come from. And we don't know who or which groups of people that breakthrough is gonna come from now because it's a very complex um, environment uh, in which science is done. The instruments that we now have and have developed are so complicated and sophisticated. So the plus side is they're so sophisticated, but the other side is that they're complicated. So you need a lot of teams of people who know how to use an instrument to its full capability to exploit it and learn more. So I think that while there is this trope of the genius mind, uh, as a singular genius mind, um, I do think that science as an activity itself should be pursued in many different ways. So there'll be some loners um, who will be working on problems and there'll be small groups and there'll be some large collaborations. What do you say to the students you may have at Yale, uh, to the students who may be struggling, who aren't the genius in the room, uh, but they may be, be talented if they find a different avenue uh, to get to the answer to the problem. And do you see differences in gender and how uh, your students are handling setbacks? Yeah, so I mean, I think that um, the, the subject of genius is a really fraught one. And, and I tend not to really see the world of science or even the world as um, geniuses and the rest. I don't see the world that way. Because I just think that, um, as I mentioned earlier, that you know, we all have, each human being has something very, very unique to offer 
in this world in general and even within science every kind of scientific mind has something to offer and the question is whether you are able to tap into what you know gets what gives you the utmost expression for your originality and creativity whether you have the circumstances that help tease that out of you right and i think i tell my students uh, exactly this that there is no such thing as you know a part of the academic culture is to always uh, assign a pecking order so you come into the room you're in a classroom they're like oh that's the smartest guy number two number three i i really don't like that kind of hierarchical organizing of abilities and you know minds and so on so i encourage my students to figure out for themselves tap into themselves and see what is it that you can bring uniquely what is your strength you're the person who knows that and all i can do as a teacher is to help you facilitate give you the kinds of tools for self-exploration to figure out what is it that you're good at so there's some people some of my students are just really raw technical power they're very impressive so their grasp of mathematics, their intuitive understanding of physics is incredible, right? And then there are these other kids who have a remarkable ability to draw connections between things that don't seem connected. So when you give them a problem, they're kind of stymied at this particular problem, but they're like, oh, that looks like that other problem that I did in that other class for something else. The mathematics looks similar. Let me try that. So you know, there are these different kinds of minds, and so I encourage my students to sort of figure out you know, what it is that they can best do. And in terms of gendered, I think that the there's a very gendered reaction to success and failure. And I think that's part of society, of, of what's going on in society and how we are bringing up our children. And I noticed this very, very sharply. So I teach an undergraduate class for non-science majors at Yale, an introduction to cosmology. I developed this course and I taught it for many years. Uh, and I've sort of handed over people and I t I'm taking it over again next spring. And in that class, I would, you know, you would have um, music majors, you'd have everyone across the board. It's an introduction to cosmology with basic mathematics. And you know, but it's hard. It's a hard course. It's abstract concepts. So I'd give the first test. And it is so gendered when kids will come to me after the test. Um, the boy kids will come and say, well, you know, they'll come, everyone, they're all sort of conscious about their grade. So they'll come back, they've not done as well as they thought they would, so they'll come back. Boy kids will be like, mm, you know, your questions were a little ambiguous. You know, I'm not sure, is this what you meant? I thought you meant this, and you know, give me the points. And then I would have the girl kids who would come to me and, you know, very sort of uh, quietly ask me, um, kind of didn't do well in the test, should I just drop the class? Maybe I just can't do this, you know, maybe I can't hack this. You know, and every time I, th when, I when I recount this and I say, well, you know, next time I teach it's gonna be different, I'm sure, you know, it's just, uh, just, but without fail, every time, there's a very gendered response. And I think we are conditioning kids from a very, very young age by saying who can do what and who can do what well. And I think we are making, we are drawing up all these little silos and telling people that, you know, if you are such and such, then this is what you are going to be good at, or, you know, um, and so on. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to be good at that. And, and I think this is something that in our educational system, at a very basic level, we have to dispel. We've got to start dispelling this idea of an ideal type of who has what kind of mind. 
Uh, and I think that, you know, um, the hard work needs to be done well before they come to Yale or, you know, even high school or whatever. We're listening back to a conversation we taped earlier this month for Where We Live's Making Her Story. Today, we're profiling Priya Natarajan, a Yale astrophysicist and author of the book Mapping the Heavens, the radical scientific ideas that reveal the cosmos. After the break, we hear Priya's perspective of being a scientist given the current political climate. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're airing our latest conversation in Where We Live's Making Her Story, a series featuring the stories of prominent Connecticut women. Today we're hearing from Yale astrophysicist Priya Natarajan. I asked Priya what it's like to be a scientist given the rhetoric and actions by the Trump administration. Who would have thought that the technological superpower, scientific superpower of the world, that has really um, been leading in pretty much every scientific field that you can imagine um, the last 40, 50 years, that there, there would be such rampant denialism of science in that society. I think to me, that's what is shocking. That, you know, people talk about India being complex and chaotic and, um, and so on. You don't have the same, you know, and, and there are many religions uh, in India, people practicing religion, but there isn't the same kind of response uh, to evolution, for example, right, uh, that you have in the United States. So I have always found that puzzling, and um, uh, puzzling is a soft way to say shocking, but um, also very disturbing. and. I have a personal take on why I think and what uh, what might help and what you know and, and that's what drives me to do what I do and you know write the book and do all the writing that I do outside of my research work. I really believe that the process of science, how science works, needs to be demystified mm -hmm. for the public. And in particular, there are two aspects of science uh, that I think are a great boon for scientists, but they're really complicated for people who are not part of the scientific enterprise, um, the public. And that is the fact that science is contingent. Everything we know is provisional. It's best to date. We have the best, given the data, given the instruments, given the sophistication of the instruments, given our cognitive capacity at the moment, this is the best understanding, and it is apt to change. Right? And as scientists, we are taught to be open-minded and nimble all the time. And I think the pace of scientific discovery has been dizzying in the last 20 years. So that's been very difficult for the public to get their heads around, you know, having to be always ready to change your mind and refine. And, you know, but, and I think one of the problems is that uh, there is this misconception that, you know, Anything, everything you know today could be upended tomorrow. It never is completely upended. Very rarely is one theory or one worldview completely upended, right? Like Copernicus, 1543, right? It happened then. And then 1914, Hubble realized you know, uh, that there are many other galaxies out there. So these kind of major shifts don't happen every day. So what's really happening when things change is we are refining and honing our understanding. Right? It's evolving, it's deepening, it's mm -hmm. getting more profound. So I think this idea, so this process of science needs to be demystified, and the other thing is uncertainty. The fact that you know, 
we are limited by our instruments to only measure as far as we can at the moment, to know as much as we know at the moment. So I really think that, you know, sort of scientific denialism in general um, uh, can be, needs to be combated with scientists helping to demystify the process of science. So not only, I feel like, at least my community, not only do we have to share recent exciting discoveries, but also share the process of how science actually uh, gets done. I think the troubling thing right now for me, uh, the thing that worries me most is the funding for basic sciences. And, and I think that uh, we stand to lose an entire generation of bright minds if we don't fund basic sciences. And this whole idea, we have suddenly over the last few years, and I think um, possibly after the financial crisis, because we had to get out of that crisis, uh, we've had a sort of a narrower view of innovation. We now sort of conflate the idea of innovation with some new bright idea that can be immediately some a discovery or whatever, new way of thinking that can be immediately monetized, right? So you can have this idea, you have a startup, you make money, and then you know you suddenly you know you make a billion or whatever. Facebook. So, yeah, you know, so I think we've had a few of those incredible companies that have done that. Um, but you know, but that's not the, they are great innovators, but that's not the only kind of innovation. Innovation happens on many different time scales, right? And so with basic sciences, it's very, very hard to tell when the actual real fruits, it's very hard to actually put a cost and put a, a dollar value. So who would have thought that you know, studying the interaction of radiation and matter. This sounds really esoteric, right? So this is a discovery of x-rays. Who would have thought that when Ronchin discovered, you know, x-rays, that he could, we could do medical imaging with it, we could um, map cracks and surfaces in buildings. I mean, we, all the applications that have come out of it, right, over the last several hundred years, it's really hard to pin down with basic sciences where it's going to lead us in terms of actual inventions and discoveries. But it really needs to be funded. So any kind of research that is long horizon needs to be funded, right? And without the pressure to produce a product tomorrow or you know, in two years or whatever. So I am worried about the funding for basic sciences. Uh, and I think that if we defund basic sciences today, right? so basically what we're going to do is we're going to stifle, we're going to thwart an entire generation of people who will no longer go into basic sciences for PhDs or do research because we are we are sort of you know we're choking the funding streams now, and so we'll miss an entire generation, and that's very scary. I mean, it's very scary in terms of losing our technological. You know, we have a head start mm -hmm. over most other countries in the world, and we are likely to lose being the technical scientific superpower. Do you worry about a, a brain drain? people like yourself who are not able to get the research dollars that leave to go elsewhere? Well, I mean, I think um, there there's some interesting things happening. Um, so I know I have some colleagues, Chinese colleagues in the medical school at Yale, who, for example, have appointments for during the summer months where they're not funded to be at Yale. Um, they are actually funded and they run uh, research labs in China. And where they, uh, they have a lot more funding um, than they have um, at in the United States uh, with the funding agencies here. So I think that um, 
It's not so much the brain drain. I think the world is global. So I think there's, there'll always be circulation. People will go back and forth to different countries. But I think where we stand to lose is um, scientific leadership of what's happening um, in terms of um, harnessing technologies and, um, and, and really kind of pushing the boundaries of knowledge uh, of what we know now. I think we stand to lose there. And I think that's something I really would not want us to see. Uh, Priya brought some slides to further illustrate her work. And you were just talking about disruption. You're a disruptor of sorts when you think about mapping dark matter. Can you walk us through some of the Sure, research? sure. So what's, what's really exciting about, as I said, with dark matter, right? It, um, it is invisible. Um, and therefore, it does not interact it doesn't, and also whatever this dark matter might be made of, we think it's probably some particles that were created very early on in the universe that we are yet to pin down what they are. Um, and as I said, because they have matter, we know they have gravity. Luckily for us, what matter interacts with light indirectly in a very interesting way, and this was predicted by um, Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is that matter of any kind, be it visible or invisible, will deflect light. And the way it deflects light, the reason it deflects light is if you go back to this picture of the entire universe being a four-dimensional sheet, so three dimensions of space and one of time, so it's kind of like, think of it as a rubber sheet, then any matter, so the universe is just that sheet, nothing above the universe, nothing below the universe. So we are all on that sheet, right? And any matter, so for example, the sun in that sheet would create a huge pothole. And the depth of the pothole, how deep that pothole is, depends on how much matter there is and how compact, how it's packed. So um, if you have matter in the universe that is unseen in every other way, one impact that it does have is that it warps space-time by generating these potholes. And because the universe gets sort of, you know, has these deep divots, light, that is our cosmic messenger, will actually follow up and down those potholes. And that has an impact in the sense if you have a distant galaxy, you have a lot of matter that's intervening, as you can see in that slide, you see a nice undulation, a pothole that you see. You see these galaxies, these bright spots of light. And outside the galaxies, there's a huge amount of dark matter that you are not seeing. But you are sh the impact is shown here with the pothole that's generated in the space-time. And the pothole you can sense by looking at those grid points that look much mushed together in the inner regions. They're sort of, you know, you see that little bump. Um, and so light rays from a distant galaxy would actually get bent. So you see those red rays in the diagram there. They actually get deflected because there's a lot of matter because it's just following the pothole. Basically, light has to follow the pothole because the universe is that sheet with all the potholes, with all the warps and the potholes. And so you end up seeing very distorted shapes for galaxies. So because not every region, thankfully, like unlike I-95, which has a pothole pretty much everywhere, as far as I can tell, <laughs> Most of the universe does not had to have these deep potholes, right? So you mostly see galaxies that are undistorted, distant ones. And in the regions where you have a huge amount of dark matter and a deep pothole, you see very distorted shapes. But because you know what the undistorted shapes look like, you can kind of back out how much matter you need to have in between when you see a very distorted patch. 
And so you can work out how much dark matter that there is. So in the next slide, you can see on the left-hand side, you see a very deep image from the Hubble Space Telescope of a region that is called a lensing galaxy cluster. So this is a, about a thousand galaxies that have a huge amount of dark matter that create a very deep pothole. And so distant galaxies behind get really distorted. So you can see some very elongated shapes for galaxies, uh, misshapen kind of galaxies. And so from that, you can back out. And what you see on the right-hand side in the blue fuzz is the dark matter, a map of the dark matter that is not seen but is there. And we infer that from the effect that it exerts on light rays. Mm. So, um, and so this is um, a brand new, this is very new work from my research group that came out um, in March this year. It's one of the deepest images of a cluster of galaxies. It's part of the Hubble, the Hubble Space Telescope. It's an absolutely exquisite telescope and the optics are amazing. Um, and this image uh, is one of the deepest images taken by the Hubble Space Telescope of such a region, of a deep pothole. And um, the final slide, so as I said, um, one way to think about it is how dark matter is smeared lightly everywhere in the universe, but these regions where potholes are generated, you basically have a heap of dark matter, which is what you know is giving us that pothole. Right? So you have dark matter that's heaped. Sounds counterintuitive, but you heap dark matter, but that's what generates this deep pothole. So you can then visualize the blue fuzz that we just saw as heaps of dark matter, so mountains and valleys, and that's what this looks like. This is the dark matter visualized as heaps. Uh, I think it's just spectacularly beautiful. Um, and this is a big deal. Has this ever been done before? Yeah, this is, I mean, at this resolution, it hasn't been done before because of the kind of details that you had in that Hubble Space Telescope image. This is kind of one of the highest resolution, the highest resolution dark matter map of a lensing cluster uh, that's generated. Our next Making Her Story is Tuesday, September 12th. Join us at the Warner Theater for a conversation with Carolyn Kwan, music director of the Hartford Symphony Orchestra. The event begins at 7. More information on our website, wmpr.org. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Thanks to Priya Natarajan, Katie Tularski, the Warner Theater, Lynn Gellermino, Karen Tomasco, Beth Messina, John Olson, Jeff Tyson, and Tim Cohn. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>